When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. So how was your uh, admission season? Oh, wait a minute. You've been on leave. You didn't have to do or get get to do admissions this year, did you, for your MFA program? I was on sabbatical and I did not do admissions, but I heard it went really well. I'm excited for the coming semester. How did things go down at UMKC? I think it was great. You know, it's that for me, it actually is. I mean, it's hard work, but it's an exciting time of year because you're bringing new students into the program and looking forward to working with them. However, it may admissions next year may be very different, um, at least according to the Supreme Court. That is right. Last month in the case Students for Fair Admissions Incorporated versus Harvard and the University of North Carolina, the Supreme Court has ruled that race can no longer be considered a factor in college admissions. I love that Students for Fair Admissions. I, I don't love it, actually. <laughs> that, that, that's the name of the plaintiff because it seems very sort of Orwellian because they're like arguing <laughs> for more unfair admissions in my personal view. But um, you know, affirmative action was designed to make college admissions fair, not unfair. That's always been that's always been my take too, but it is no longer the law of the land. And as we noted in the opening, both you and I are in fact usually involved in MFA admissions through our programs. So we're gonna discuss this ruling and how it may affect admissions in MFA programs going forward with our guest, a returnee to the podcast, poet and essayist Jess Winder Bolina. Jess Winder Bellina's book, English as a Second Language and Other Poems, is forthcoming from Copper Canyon Press in October 2023. His previous books include The 44th of July, uh, which was long listed for the 2019 Pen America Open Book Award, Phantom Camera, winner of the 2012 Green Rose Prize in Poetry, Carrier Wave, winner of the 2006 Colorado Prize for Poetry, and the digital chapbook, The Tallest Building in America. Bellina's poems have been featured in Best American Poetry series and have appeared at, at venues including Poetry, The New Yorker, American Poetry Review, Plowshares, and others. He's currently chair of the English Department at the University of Miami. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Good to see you both. Good to see you. So um, where were you when this Students for Fair Admissions decision came down? What was your initial reaction? Were you surprised? Were you expecting it? Um, blanking on where I was, but, um, no, I have to admit I was not surprised. Um, it, I, you know, I, it was to the point where I hadn't even been tracking it all that closely because I, I, it felt like a foregone conclusion. And that's largely because, um, it's been, t- I think, 25 years or so since the state of California passed a, a voter referendum that did away with race-based admissions. And then, I think, uh, what was it, about 2005 that the Supreme Court ruled against um, the University of Michigan, and um, there was, I think, another related case that had already limited affirmative action. It just didn't feel like it would hold up. Um, 
and especially and pointedly when um, I, I, you know, I took into account the composition of the court. There, it seemed like there was almost no way that a Trump-appointed Supreme Court was going to vote this decision down. Um, the opening opinion outlines exactly how Harvard's admission process works. Uh, and so I'm just going to read it and we can then we're going to talk a little bit about how our, what we know about admissions processes at MFA programs, which is not the same thing. At Harvard, it reads, each application for admission is initially screened by a first reader who assigns a numerical score in each of six categories, academic, extracurricular, athletic, school support, personal, and overall. For the overall category, a first reader can and does consider the applicant's race. Harvard's admissions subcommittees then review all applications from a particular geographic area. These regional subcommittees, all right, that's <laughs> it's actually very long, very complicated. Uh, when the 40-member full admissions committee begins its deliberations, it discusses the relative breakdown of applicants by race. The goal of the process, according to Harvard's director of admissions, is to ensure there is no dramatic drop-off in minority admissions from the prior class. So it's very explicit about the way in which they're doing and considering race. There's other stuff about how they have a final stage called the LOP, which winnows a list of tentatively admitted students to arrive at the final class. And applicants at Harvard considers cutting at the stage or placing the LOP list, which contains four pieces of information. Legacy status, which is controversial, recruited athlete status, financial aid eligibility, and race. And they say that race is a determinative tip for a significant percentage of all admitted African-American and Hispanic applicants. So we have all participated in MFA program admissions. We're going to each talk about our program, but how how does that compare to what your MFA program admissions process is like, Jess Winter? It is, it is wildly more formal. And 40 people, good God, I wish we had 40 people. Um, although if we had 40 people reviewing applications, that would be probably almost equal to a third of the total applications we get, you know. Um, yeah. Know. What a nightmare. Be, um, so <laughs> uh, we, you know, the faculty are the, are the admissions committee. We have um, six total faculty here in creative writing. Um, I am currently the only uh, tenured person who is dedicated to poetry. You know, that's my area. Um, although I do write essays and other things. Um, I do have a colleague um, who, Kai Miller, who is a, a brilliant writer and he writes in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. So um, he and the director of creative writing, Chantal Acevedo, will, uh, and she's also got a, a book of poetry out, will sometimes read with me. But usually it's just that small faculty committee. We split it up, fiction and poetry. Um, and we gather the applications. They're in a box folder. They're all listed there. And um, we each read them separately, go through, put in our comments, and then we meet to discuss um, the various sort of uh, strengths and weaknesses of each applicant. Um, but nothing anywhere near as formal as what you just read. But of course, this is grad school. It's grad admissions. The, the, the number of people applying to our program um, is dwarfed you know, exponentially compared to the number of undergrads who apply to Harvard. Um, but yeah, we get about 100 to 120 applicants per year. Um, but keep in mind, we can only usually admit two to three people per genre. So it is highly selective, um, but not nearly as arduous or involved. So it seems to me like, well, so in listening to that Harvard description, um, I am reminded that 
one of the arguments that Harvard made was about the holistic nature of its process. And Harvard, of course, is an incredibly well-resourced institution, including in how it is, right, like how it's staffing that. Um, and this was one of the things that I think, if I'm remembering correctly, came up in the University of Michigan case where, um, right, in so, so many schools where the applications, particularly public schools, where applications are so high, right, they're assigning numerical values because by necessity, that's the only way they can process that many applications. So Harvard has this big advantage in that they have this huge number of applications and they have the resources to contend with it in a holistic way. And one of the things that the affirmative action decision does is it means that even Harvard can't do that. Like that holistic argument is gone. Um, and I do think like for most graduate programs, including the ones in which I've been involved, even when there have been numerical components, like of course there are always the intangibles um, and there are people reading applications. I mean, that's, that's inescapable. And um, you know, I've read applications both at the University of Michigan, just where Just Winder got his MFA, and and also at the University of Minnesota, um, where I am. Um, I've I've been a member of the Fiction Admissions Committee for most of the years that I've been teaching there, excluding only when I've been on leave. Um, and depending on the number of applications, but most of the time, there have been um, two to three rounds of reading, um, sort of an initial cut, and then. Um, two rounds of reading where the readers are primarily or exclusively faculty. Um, sometimes we have hired readers uh, because the application numbers are actually, you know, we're fortunate to get a lot of applications. And so we are also admitting, like right now we're admitting three students for each of three genres. And in fiction, the application numbers are the highest. And so sometimes to make sure that we are reading all of those applications as attentively as possible, we have... Um, hired outside readers, um, often and usually people affiliated with the program in some way. Um, and also just to make sure that we have a diversity of readers. So that's sort of like the very quick and dirty description of how we have done things. Um, and so also our cohort size has recently gotten smaller. Um, I think prior to my arrival at the University of Minnesota, I un understand that it was five students for each of the three genres per year. And it's a three-year program. Um, and then it was four, and now it's three. So, and I wasn't, I should add, involved in, mission, in admissions this past year because I've been on sabbatical. So, but, um, so it's possible it changed this past year, but uh, in my broad experience of reading admissions um, at Minnesota since about the fall of 2015, that has been the way it's gone. And like, you know, like sort of like Harvard because the application numbers are so small like we're able to read the applications and we're not like, right. You're not sort of forced into a position where you're like, Oh, I'm going to, this person has this quality. Therefore I'm going to add a 10 to their score or something like that. Like that's not what's going on um, in any, in any regard. Okay. We're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. I mean, the way that we do it uh, is that, it depends on the number of applications we're getting. We've been getting more recently, but so we did have divided up the reading more, but it's the same thing. Faculty reads them. So we then like rank the students. This is mostly, but we decide who's going to get in and who's not getting in basically, you know, like, okay, we don't think we can work with this student. And that really has only to do with writing. Right. But then we rank students based on it because we can't fund everyone that get in. Unlike we're not a fully funded program like you are. So we're going to have some students who are going to come and pay and we're going to have some students who get funding. And that's where things become selective. So we will each rank the students on our own list, not telling anyone else. And then we show the list to each other 
and determine the score. And whoever gets the highest number is going to be our first. And we go down the list, basically, and don't change it from there. And I feel like when I'm making decisions, I am thinking about race at that point, you know, particularly. I, I want us to have a diverse program. And I think it's important, and we're going to discuss later on why that would be a value, but it has been a value in American society for some time, right? And is, at what point does race come into your admissions proceedings, if, it, if at all? Yeah, so, I mean, I should say that we are also, we are fully funded. That's why we're limited to only two people, two to three people per genre per year. It's, um, I think, long before I got here, there, there was... Uh, a policy to admit more, but some people got funding and others did not. And um, the the faculty at the time discovered that was not great for, let's call it unit cohesion. Um, and it caused a lot of animosity. And so uh, they switched uh, before, again, before I got here to a model, and I, I've been here about 10 years now, um, we switched to a model where everybody's fully funded. Um, we also do a similar thing where we each individually rank our candidates um, and then we compare notes and whether it's working with the current faculty or faculty who were here uh, previously, I can say that, um, you know, our, our numbers, our rankings often lined up pretty well. And I would say that in that process, I, I don't, I, we, I focus on the work and it, it's something that you just said, uh, Whitney, that, uh, really captures it. Can I work with this person? Right. There have been uh, writers who I think are immensely talented, but I, I don't think that based on their formal choices, their aesthetics, that I'm going to be able to provide a lot of useful feedback. Um, you know, that's based on the work, based on your own uh, estimation of of what you are accustomed to to writing and reading. Um, race, I think, is in the back of my mind as I go through and read. Um, but it, it, it really does begin with the work. And if the, the language is interesting, if, if the kinds of observations being made, the imagery, the, the, the description, if those things are popping, um, I'm not very concerned about what your subject matter is. I'm more looking at the language and the craft of it. Um, but we do hit a point where, once we have our rankings all done, you're kind of looking to see, is diversity represented here? For us, that we have this slight, I think, not slight, actually, let me take that back. We have a profound advantage. Our uh, faculty is entirely POC. We um, have six faculty, and every single one of us um, hails from either first or second generation immigrant backgrounds. Um, and you know, we have a diversity of races uh, represented here. And so there isn't, we're not looking to kind of impose anything on our, uh, you know, admitted pool of students, but we are looking to see that as a faculty as diverse as ours is, is our student body doing the exact kind of same work? Um, are, they, are they interested in the same kinds of concerns we're interested in? So correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't creating a diverse student body in classroom part of what we're supposed to be doing? I mean, we're sort of batting around the word diverse here. Um, and of course, it's not perfectly interchangeable with race. There's all sorts of other factors there. But um, MFA programs in the past were known to be predominantly white, um, far too white. And even though a serious effort has been made to change this, predominantly MFA programs are still white. And 
I assume that the University of Miami has been officially supportive of diversity and inclusion because most universities are, but your governor, Ron DeSantis, loves to boast that Florida is the place where woke goes to die. Well, I think I think right now uh, Florida is the place where presidential campaigns go to die. Um, and I'm <laughs> glad, glad to see that right now. I do not... Um, I, I don't like to say he's not my governor. I mean, this is a democracy. He is the governor of the state I live in. I don't support him or his uh, platform um, on any level. But um, yeah, we. I, I think what gets missed in all of this is if we regard university, a university education, undergrad or or higher, you know, uh, postgrad, if we regard that as some kind of zero sum game some kind of capitalist enterprise where you are trying to get an advantage over somebody else and it's a knife fight, hunger games all the way to the top, um, <laughs> then you're going to have very little interest in diversity, background, anything like that, because your only interest in getting this degree is to get to the other side of it so you can go make your money and make your, your mark or whatever it is that you're interested in doing from the perspective of personal ambition. I think, though, that the the optimistic tradition of higher ed is that it, and especially in an MFA program where we rely so much on workshops and feedback to each other and, and sort of a, a kind of not a top-down model, but a collective communal model, you absolutely want diversity in those spaces. Because if your, if your workshop all look like you and the feedback they're giving you is, hey, you're pretty great because, I don't know, you have uh, such a lack of, of difference with them, um, that might feel really good in the moment. But then you go out into the, the publishing space, into that other space, and you discover, hey, nobody seems to like my work very much. But all the people who looked like me all liked it. And I went to a program where everybody looked like me, and they all liked it. Um, and so wh whether it's a, a race or actual aesthetic, actual like writing style if we just admitted a bunch of people who i'll just pull a, a poet out of thin air we i i like james tate so i'm gonna look for students who write like james tate and i'm gonna bring james tate in as a guest and i'm only gonna have them reading james tate books um you know they might we might all have a happy time being you know james tate fans but then you go out and publish and and you discover hey there isn't a lot of appetite for everybody to write this way. There's only one James Tate. We want diversity of aesthetic. We want diversity of background and experience, in part because of the way that contributes really constructively to the feedback we give each other on our work and helps us to think about that work differently. I think you're getting at something really interesting also about the curious position of artists in higher education. And, and higher education is at this sort of weird fulcrum of Right? Like we live in this capitalist society and higher education, like we're, these are nonprofits technically. Um, they purportedly have these you know, idealistic, moralistic educational missions like for societal good, for people's good. And then also they, they have large endowments. Um, they are land grant or land grab institutions. Um, they often have like, they're huge beneficiaries. Even public institutions are huge beneficiaries of private money. Um, and so... You know, for a long time, also diversity and including and perhaps foremost racial diversity has been something, for example, that's been trotted out for like donors. And I wonder how that is going to be affected in, in this in this case. And, and the University of Miami is private. Um, you know, the University of Michigan um, 
is a public institution that benefits from a huge amount of private money. The University of Minnesota, where I teach, is a public institution. UMKC, um, Whitney, I don't know how much private money is at UMKC, but that's a that's a public institution. It's very public. I mean, but it also has had a long commitment to diversity. It's in a diverse city. It's, you know, uh, there's a large black population here and we've had two chancellors of color in a row. And, and they're very, you know, this is the thing that I, a thought experiment, right, for people is like, you know, we've mentioned this earlier and, and Justice uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson pointed out that it's okay to uh, consider legacy. It's, I mean, they're, they're not, they're out ruling, they're ruling out one thing among many, many factors that go into determining things about students. Like do this thought experiment. Like what if I got 10 applicants who were all writing stories set in Brooklyn and I got one applicant who was writing a farm story set in Nebraska? Well, maybe I would, I would value that person writing in Nebraska and maybe take a couple of people from Brooklyn, but not all 10, you know, if their work was all the same, right? If there wasn't a notable distinction between them. And that often happens, you know. Also, you guys said, well, we take only three people from each genre. Well, then should the Supreme Court come in and say, well, you have to, you can't discriminate against poets. That's not fair. You know, but we do that. We're like, well, look, we've already we've already gotten given funding to two poets. We got to get some fiction writers in there to get funding, even if maybe one of the poets is better than one of the other fiction writers. No one's saying that you can't do that. And that's why it just seems illogical to not consider, you know, like this one thing is you're not allowed to talk about because it's one of the most important issues in American life. You know, anyway. No, absolutely. I mean, it is. I, I think. um if we think of education, of higher education, as as is, I think, occurring across this country and has been for decades now as a kind of trade school, as a place where you go to get whatever certificate you need, whatever knowledge you need to go out and get that high paying job somewhere. It, and by the way, I'm, I'm contrary to, to, to perhaps some opinion we are not all socialists here. We understand the need to go out and get a job, right, and and have a career. Um, but if that becomes the only motivation, then of course you're going to come back and say, well, why is this person being given greater, from your point of view, consideration than I am based on this one metric of race and skin color? And if I come back and say to you, well, because you understand that the, the structure of, of our society for about 400 years has benefited one group and harmed a lot of others. And we're trying to account for that. And the person comes back and says, but that, what does that have to do with me? Right. I'm 18. I'm applying to school. I did everything. I was in the honor society. I was president of the class, whatever it is. I deserve to be here more than that other person writing about that Nebraska story. Right. Who cares if I'm from Brooklyn and 10 other people are too. And I get that. I get that that, that argument comes back. I think it's why a lot of uh, South Asian and East Asian students are kind of bound up in some of these lawsuits because they feel like, well, wait, but people have been racist to us too. Why aren't we, get, you know, why are we being um, included as, or excluded, I suppose? Why, why aren't our backgrounds considered? And I, I think it is this idea that we're trying to solve a lot of problems all at once with affirmative action, right? It seems like the quickest answer is to immediately diversify things. But I, what I wish would happen instead, um, Whitney, to your point, if your faculty are five people from Brooklyn, then those 10 kids from Brooklyn are getting in 
And then that poor Nebraska kid is being told nobody here cares about what you're what you're writing about or what you have to say. Right. And so one of the solutions here and maybe the affirmative action feels like a bottom up solution. Right. We're going to try to diversify the people we let in where what we kind of need is a top down solution. We need to diversify faculty. We need to diversify administrators. We need to diversify the Supreme Court. And this decision, I think, is evidence of how that didn't pan out, right? The the uniformity of the court, because a, a president like Donald Trump got to appoint three of them, um, that's what leads to only caring about stories from Brooklyn, you know, and not about these other stories that um, that other justices are, are interested in. There just aren't enough of those other justices on the court. Um, this is so interesting because, like, yeah, like... I don't know, like I was saying before, I think, right, higher education is supposed to be this place where theoretically capitalism doesn't apply, except for it's a major engine of class mobility. Um, when I was a freshman in college um, at Harvard, I took a class called Philosophies of Race and Racism with Kwame Anthony Appiah. And I remember, like, I don't know, so much of this class was so formative for me. And it was, I feel like one of the things that I've heard people say so often in response to conversations about affirmative action over the years has been kind of like, you know, the second race comes up, someone says, but what about class? And like, I'm not um, opposed to the consideration of class as, a, as an aspect of diversity, but you wouldn't attempt to, I don't know, like it's, it's trying to solve, it's, it's a little bit of like whataboutism, like it's, it's sort of trying to solve a problem by applying a strategy that's designed for a different problem. And, and those, there's sort of this presumption that race and socioeconomic diversity have like a perfect overlap, for example. So I don't know. I think that, um, and Whitney, to like your point from earlier, from the reading that I've done, um, it seems very likely that the lawsuits that are going to follow this are probably going to attack, for example, the consideration of gender, um, sexual orientation, all other sorts of diverse statuses or identity statuses. I mean, we next. consider veteran status. We consider uh, LGBTQ. Yeah. We consider gender. Right. And so, you know? and I mean, those are things we're trying to balance. We wouldn't admit an, an entire class only of women. Right. You and, know, I don't think we would do that. And you know? um, and I think we actually, I think, maybe would because um, the class is so small that that is theoretically possible. Um, but I think, like, right, like one of the things that's excluded from this action. Or only of men. People would, people would like that less. <laughs> I switched it around just to make it less controversial. But, right, would you would you would it be great if we just excluded women de so facto from the, one of the things know? the affirmative action decision excludes is actually military academies where there are distinct interests, right? And like a lot of people observed in the wake of this decision, like, oh, that's funny. Like, it's fine to consider race when it comes to people's military service. But like, oh, when it comes to this other, this other kind of um, like major engine of class mobility and like just mobility in life, like this is not access and opportunity like that. Here we can't consider it, but there we can consider it. That is extremely suspect. And I do think that like one of the things that's coming down the pike maybe are attacks on a lot of other ways that we do consider diversity. So um, there was an article in the Chronicle of Higher Ed about a guy named whose last name is Perry, who's been filing a lot of complaints against institutions. He's actually a University of Minnesota alum. Um, many of that guy's complaints about discrimination have to do with gender, um, right? And so I think like there's all of these, like some of the question is like, how does the ruling itself apply? Anyway, I do think that this, like, so this ruling is damaging to MFA students from all different places and races and 
different identities. The country is diverse, as like so much of our conversation is demonstrating. And Jess Winder, I think, you know, your, to your comment about the faculty diversifying, like, like you can diversify a student cohort so much faster than you can diversify a faculty, which is maybe part of the reason this is such a heated topic. There's an mm-hmm. NPR article from 2020 called Creativity and Diversity, How Exposure to Different People Affects Our Thinking, that suggests that pe- relationships with people from different cultures can positively affect creativity. Um, and so much of the most popular, most critically acclaimed and best-selling work in this country, like so much of the best writing we read is about race, um, including your own. And I wonder if you could read to us from your essay, American Indian, and then we'll talk a little bit about that. Well, thank you. That's generous of you. Um, and yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, the uh, essay, you can, people can find it online. Um, it is at the Paris Review. Um Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. Uh, and it has an epigraph, which comes from the film Quiz Show, um, and John Turturro plays uh, the real-life uh, person, Herb Stemple, um, who says at one point to his son, you know why they call him Indians? Because Columbus thought he was in India. They're called Indians because some white guy got lost. We called them American Bua and American Fuffer the middle of my father's three older sisters and her husband. As the vanguard of my family's transplants to the U.S., they'd been assigned these honorifics by their nieces and nephews living then in England. American Fuffer arrived in Chicago for a temporary stay in the late 50s, then returned permanently with Bua in 1971. Together, they raised three children while she labored in an an electronics assembly plant, and he worked first as a diesel engineer for the Chicago Transit Authority, and later in its managerial ranks. In their earliest years here, they would occasionally receive a phone call from a stranger who had just arrived at O'Hare on British Airways or Air India. The callers didn't speak much English, and they had no friends or family in the city. They'd simply found a payphone in the terminal, opened the directory, and dialed the number next to any name that sounded like it came from their part of the world. When these calls came in, my uncle would drive from the family's apartment in Logan Square to the airport and collect the newcomers, whether they were Punjabi, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, whether they were Hindu, Muslim, or Sikh. And he and my aunt would host them, sometimes for months, until they had secured employment and apartment leases. This is a kind of generosity that has been practiced by generations of immigrants to and from every part of the world. Among South Asians, such ethnic esprit de corps is captured most succinctly by the term desi, which Vijay Prashad defines to include those of Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Afghani, Sri Lankan, and Nepalese descent. It isn't his invention. It's commonplace enough among my family that I know it to mean one of us, in a manner akin to the Italian paisan. Derived from Sanskrit, desi refers to umber skin and curried English. But like paisan, again, its application isn't entirely seamless. Where outsiders might see homogeneity, immense internecine tensions permeate the histories of Desi peoples. Even among Indians arrived in the West from what is ostensibly a single country, there are chasms of cultural, linguistic, and religious difference that make India more like the fitful cohesion of Europe's constituent nations than anything resembling the U.S. Uniting all our tongues, gods, cultures, and bodies under a single Desi banner is tribalism elevated to a continental scale and it doesn't quite work. Yet, desi isn't a a wrong category for us to embrace. When you live in a place that doesn't recognize differences between you and anyone who looks vaguely like you, you come to accept, even welcome, certain conflations. Partition isn't much remembered. 
Who assassinated whose head of state and for what reason doesn't seem to matter any longer. The Cold War over Kashmir, the occupation of Amritsar, the Bangladesh Liberation War, the centuries-long history of persecution and conflict across South Asia. These are hardly known, much less understood, in the West. Here, survival matters. Wellness matters. It matters that we have each other. Growing up in Chicago in the 80s and 90s, it seemed to me that I really might be related to anyone with brown skin and a Bollywood accent. My uncles and aunties were Gujarati and Pakistani, Hindu and Muslim, Jat Sikh and Sani. They were shopkeepers and cab drivers, laborers and tailors, professors and physicians. If it takes a village, I lived in a flourishing and richly populated one. Still, in that village, I have long felt like a freeloader. Though I understand and speak Punjabi, and can muddle through a modicum of Urdu and Hindi, though I wore karta pajamas as a kid and can cook a few sabjis, I know little of the vastness and diversity of the Desi nations. From my one visit to India when I was four, I remember nothing but a sensation here, an image there, a water well between stalks of what might have been sugarcane, sog and corn flour roti cooking under an open sky at night, bathing in the reservoir surrounding the golden temple, smoke and the lingering smell of burning hanging over farm fields. This is the entirety of my first-hand reporting on a nation of more than a billion people and it's 65,000 years of history. Like every other child of immigrants here, first generation or fifth, my distance, my detachment, and my ignorance make me an American. Thank you. <laughs> I was thinking about that. Um, you know, we're trying not to encourage distance, detachment, and ignorance in the MFA programs of the backgrounds and histories of people living among us and of our own histories, you know? Um, and it, when it comes to that in America and America's history, you know, arguing that you can't consider race while admitting students who want to learn to write about America, which is a country that can't be understood without considering race. It's, it's a very tricky uh, subject. You know, I was trying to like, how is the Supreme Court going to, first of all, will comply with the law, you know, whatever the law is fine. I, you know, the law is the law. What kind of thought policing is going to go on inside my, it has to go on inside my head. What if I have a really excellent, you know, student who's a Peruvian ancestry who we want so badly in the program and I'm offering a scholarship because I, I want to get this guy or woman, right? How do, how does the Supreme Court know whether I'm doing it just because of the work or I also like the fact that he's proved how's, I don't understand how that's going to, and, and also Let's go back to the Brooklyn, uh, Nebraska metaphor, because I like it taking it out of race because it makes it seem less, you know, it's so charged in that way. The Nebraska student would like some people from Brooklyn to be there in case the Nebraska student wants to set a story in Brooklyn and they need to learn whether or not they have the ability to write about Brooklyn. And the same thing for the Brooklyn people. If they want to set a story in Lincoln, Nebraska, it's going to be helpful for them in a practical way to have a Nebraska student there. Right. So I wonder what your students think about this ruling. Like I, my impression is that my students and my white students want the program to be diverse. They, they value the voices of the students of color who are there. Right. And vice versa. Yeah. So since this decision came down, I haven't actually encountered a lot of my students. It's, a, it's summertime. Right. But um, but I, you know, my general sense among our students is that. No, nobody wants a. <laughs> a uniform MFA program. I mean, it. aside from the fact that you're not getting that diversity of, of feedback and perspective, you understand that, well, how do I differentiate myself from the people around me if we're all the same, right? Part of 
uh, so you this goes back to something you were saying about we're in this weird spot as artists in the academy right um and part of the thing about being an artist is being singular being differentiated right the, the reason that we don't necessarily um regard those who i don't know write like cheesy soap operas or or uh you know pulp fiction in the same way we regard Jhumpa Lahiri or Ernest Hemingway, right, or, or Zadie Smith, we we don't hold them on the same uh, platform because it's difficult to differentiate between their work, right? You you need to be a unique and individuated voice. You need to be yourself, and if you're surrounded by people who are like you, I I think that it gets more difficult to differentiate and to find your own perspective and to find your own craft. Um, and, and I think for that reason alone, I, I cannot imagine that any kind of conscientious and even self-interested MFA student would want to be in a homogenous space. I think, as Whitney, you just said, you want that other perspective to find out what you don't know so you can go chase that thing. I want to end our conversation with a reading from Judge Katanji Brown Jackson's dissent. Um, if listeners haven't had time to read it, I strongly suggest they do. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of, there's like something like 200 plus pages of writing associated with this decision. And yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of rich text there, a lot of differing interpretations of American history. But Katanji Brown Jackson's... You can get it on the internet. You can get the PDF and download it. It's like 200-some pages. You can find it. The interwebs have made it available. And I, I really appreciate um, Katanji Brown Jackson and Sonia Sotomayor in particular. Their writing on this is fabulous. And it works as a great writing, Katanji Brown Jackson's in particular, which I'm about to read, because it carefully establishes cause and effect using documented facts. So here to close us out is just a short passage. Sharecropping is but one example of race-linked obstacles that the law and private parties laid down to hinder the progress and prosperity of black people. Vagrancy laws criminalized free black men who failed to work for white landlords. Many states barred freedmen from hunting or fishing to ensure that they could not live without entering de facto re-enslavement as sharecroppers. A cornucopia of laws, e.g. banning hitchhiking, prohibiting, uh, encouraging a laborer to leave his employer, and penalizing those who prompted black southerners to migrate northward, ensured that black people could not freely seek better lives elsewhere. And when statutes did not ensure compliance, state sanctioned and private violence did. Thus emerged Jim Crow, a system that was, as much as anything else, a comprehensive scheme of economic exploitation to replace the black codes, which themselves had replaced slavery's form of comprehensive economic exploitation. Meanwhile, as Jim Crow ossified, the federal government was, quote, giving away land on the Western frontier and with it, quote, the opportunity for upward mobility and a more secure future over the 1862 Homestead Act's three-quarter century tenure. Black people were exceedingly unlikely to be allowed to share in those benefits, which by one calculation may have advantaged approximately 46 million Americans living today. Despite these barriers, Black people persisted. This is the history that the Supreme Court seems to be trying to erase, does it not? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's it, it's so nation building, uh, and and I do want to, you know, I think she does that too in that statement. Point out the fact that there were indigenous peoples here who were harmed by that those land grabs out west. But the one thing that the history of the U.S. demonstrates is that nation building, um, the community building, it takes everybody. You know, and there that history cannot be eradicated um, because it, it, it lives on in, um, in our advantages and our disadvantages and our art in our arguments. But the one thing that I, I keep coming back to is um, you have to understand that education is collaborative. Nobody gets educated in isolation. You, you can read books from the library, sure, but even that is collaborative. And why you would want to collaborate with fewer people, why you would think you would get a better education that way, <laughs> it, it, it defies any, any common That's sense. That's a good point. Um, and frankly, it defies history. I mean, I want to go back to that, the, what I was saying before. Like, I, this is going to be a polyphonic country, in my view, in terms of the multitude of voices, right? I just don't think it's possible to have a career like earlier generations of male white writers did, where they wrote only about male white writing and had characters that were white men and women, and that was it. And that's all you ever touched on. You can't accurately represent the country from any your own personal rep rep racial perspective without in considering and including others, right? And at this point, you know, it's irresponsible to try to do that. And it's irresponsible to try to teach someone that they could do that. You know, um, and so anyway, that's, you know, why I feel that it is unfortunate that the, the ruling has gone in this direction. All right. This has happened, however. The law is the law. University of Missouri, Kansas City sent out a note saying, like, we've had some small percentage of programs who considered race in their applications, of which I was one because they sent out a, a questionnaire saying, like, do you, you know, and I'm like, I mean, we have, we asked, I think every single graduate student gets a, is asked to put down their race when they apply as part of the portal, right? So that is, in a way, considering race. I don't know if we'll have to take that out or not, but I, I said, yes, we do ask for that. I mean, I didn't make up the questionnaire. The university did, but it does ask for that question, right? And so once it's there, how do you say I'm not considering it? You know, I don't, it's very weird. I don't know how that's going to change, but how do you think this will change what your universities are doing? As I was reading about this to prepare for this episode, and also just because of my own obsessive interest in this topic, one of the things that I came across was, um, you know, Sonia Sotomayor sort of saying, is like, kind of a call to action, um, you know, universities should use all of the tools that are remain available to them. And it seems like at least in the so actually, I'm going to read this little snippet, because it's kind of, um, it's a it's a good call to action, the pursuit of racial diversity will go on. Although the court has stripped out almost all uses of race in college admissions, universities can and should continue to use all available tools to meet society's needs for diversity in education. Despite the court's unjustified exercise of power, the opinion today will serve only to highlight the court's own impotence in the face of an America whose cries for equality resound. So taking her, her, her arguably, you know, pissed off call to action is my own. Um, like one of the things here is that um, the point and I'm paraphrasing Roberts here, was that applicants must be assessed individually 
So that means that if an applicant's college essay, for example, discusses how race has affected his or her life, the readers of the files are allowed to consider the individual's experiences. In other words, like it's a very careful difference in framing, right? Like so, and Sotomayor rightly was kind of like, well, this is a small loophole or, or not even a loophole, right? She, she was just kind of like, this is, this is not enough. And she's right. But it does also mean like, you know, our applicants are writing essays. And so if they are writing about the ways in which race has affected their lives, we're actually allowed to consider their experiences as individuals. And so I think we should consider to do, we should continue to do that. Um, right. And, and, you know, like, are we having them write diversity statements? You know, we have, we have done that. So what will those statements contain? Um, how are, how does that contribute to, um, you know, assessing applicants? I don't think you can do that anymore. But it's a diversity statement, right? It's not necessarily like perhaps race will, I don't know, like this is one of the things that's up in the air, right? Like one of the things that will happen in the wake of this decision will be like a whole bunch of like adjacent lawsuits about does this apply to how scholarships are awarded? Does this apply to you know, X, Y, and Z, what does this, where does this pertain and where does it not pertain? And so, I mean, as of right now, like we have a diversity statement, it's not a diversity on the basis of race statement. Um, so I don't know, like if it, if it is just called a diversity statement and applicants address that in whatever way, like, are they able to do that? Um, they're certainly writing personal statements anyway. Personal statements has, have often contained, you know, statements about identity. And some of those statements have been about race. Applicants are still free to do that. Um, and so I think we can let our applicants know that we are reading them in their full individuality as they wish to be read. Well, what would you do if your attorney general wrote this directive to your university system that you should immediately, this is a quote, immediately cease their practice of using race-based standards to make decisions about things like admission, scholarships, programs, and employment? Because that's what the Missouri Attorney General wrote after the after this ruling. Sure, I mean I think like what I'm talking about really are specifically the essays, um, and I'm pulling this from from that decision. Um, in terms of, I mean I think like that whole sentence that 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 your Attorney General just wrote, like I think is about to be the subject of a lot of lawsuits, and I don't know, like probably public universities are going to toe the line of the state Attorney General. But hopefully one thing that, I don't know, we as faculty members can do is also to, I don't know, like, are there, like, is the ACLU going to file a lawsuit about whether we can, um, or is some other institution going to file a lawsuit about whether, like, all aspects of the sentence you just read pertain? I would imagine there are about to be, like, a thousand legal ships are about to be launched. And, like, I do not have the expertise to sail on all of them, but I'm going to try to follow as many of them as I can and, like, figure out, like, where... Where do I have mobility to help people? Um, and like, what can I learn about the different aspects of the law? And I, mean, I think the question of employment, like that's definitely gonna come up. Um, and then what Joss Winder said about how do you diversify faculties, like that's gonna, that's gonna come up. Um, but I think it's gonna take years. And in the meantime, we're gonna be stuck in some sort of weird swamp. I mean, yeah, but I think that, I, I wanna go back to that phrasing, uh, each can't a what is it applicant must be uh, judged individually is that the way roberts phrased it roberts exact phrases in other words the student must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual not on the basis of race 
But like, right, if sure nothing in this opinion, he also wrote before this, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. That is actually a, a really interesting loophole trap door because it, it, it is at least, it's not enough. I agree that it's nowhere near enough, but what it says is that, and I think this is what the Tucker Carlson's of the world and white supremacists everywhere want, is that you're not allowed to bring this up, right? You're not allowed to talk about it. And that's what they're afraid of. They're afraid of letting people talk about it because when you talk about it, uh, a kind of self-evident truth starts to emerge. But let's go back to, and when I say that, I mean the, the truth of history, the, the truth the truth of experience. It, it becomes completely inarguable. But let's go back to that idea of each person being, uh, you know, decided upon individually. I dare you to show up to anywhere and, 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 demonstrate to me that you are the most sort of thoughtful, intellectually rigorous, and qualified candidate for admission into a graduate program or for a job if you are willfully denying the history of race in this country. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Demonstrate to me how that makes you smarter than the person who actually knows that history. You can't do it, right? So you can try to, to, you know, say, well, race can't be a determinant. Fine, then let's make it about intellectual rigor. If you're going to pretend that racism doesn't exist, I, I can show you the scholarship. I can show you uh, the economic data. I can show you the the demonstrable history of the ways in which race absolutely matters and must be considered in American and global life. And by the way, you can keep chasing these 1950s make America great again fantasies about a kind of homogenous society. But as the internet has demonstrated, as AI has demonstrated, as late stage capitalism has demonstrated, you can't exist or thrive in modernity in our in our contemporary moment unless you are thinking globally there is no wall big enough tall enough that's going to keep out the the kind of the globalization of human communication interaction and experience so again you can go to some fairy tale version of harvard where everybody's a white guy in a tweed jacket but Good luck walking out of that place and trying to do business with the rest of the planet who will look at your quaint and, um, frankly, provincial, uh, you know, point of view and, and find it completely useless. There is no rigor there. There's no there's no basis on which I can say you're the smartest person in the room because you pretend that racism doesn't exist. Well, I mean, you're touching on something that I could go on for hours about because, you know, uh, the, the reason that America has been successful economically is that it does, in fact, when you look at Wall Street and you look at companies, have to rely on facts. And it has an advantage over authoritarian countries that allow the leaders to rewrite history in the way that they want to. Now, what you see when, you, when, you, when we talk about authoritarianism on the right in America is that this is the first time that we've had people really actually 
promoting a kind of control of truth that would resemble what would happen in an authoritarian society. And it will, if ever successful, be incredibly destructive for the country, not just because it's morally wrong, but because it will be destructive in every other way. It destroys what makes the country successful is the pursuit and the belief that facts matter and that the past matters and the ability to argue those past truths. Sugi, you were going to say something that pissed you. All right. I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick on this slightly and say that okay. the U.S. is very, very good That's at hiding true. the truth, and it has been for many, many generations. And that the battle, t- and that the battle to extract ourselves from that is the battle that we're currently fighting, and that that battle has been going on since the nation's founding because of the erasure of multiple genocides and. And that, like, if we don't cling to this, I mean, right, what we're talking about is also something we've talked about in previous episodes where we've talked about, like, oh, like, critical race theory, like, let's ban that. Or, like, you know, Ron DeSantis, like, like let's talk, let's, let's ban certain kinds of facts from school. Let's pretend that they're not facts, right? And that is also something here, Jasmine, I think you're right to say that, like, we're in the future going to have maybe job applicants who are going to present us with, who are going to have been educated in an ahistorical fashion, and they're going to present themselves as candidates who have, who cling to that, um, to those, to, to those made up, made up histories or made up facts or lack of histories or lacks of facts. And we have to be the people who will sort of say that that's actually not rigorous. That's not, that's not, um, something that we can bring into our institutions to have teach our students. Um, and I, I don't know, I do think that we also have to think about the ways in which, this decision could cause applicants, particularly those from the least privileged backgrounds, to think that they are not allowed in their their writing to us to write about their race. And actually they are. So I think that we have to like underline that and amplify it and say, if you're writing us, you know, if you're writing an essay, like I practically want to put this quote from Roberts like on the website. Like I don't know, because um, I mean, I don't know who wants to do that, but also like he's saying that in an in an essay, like a personal essay to an institution of higher education that you're applying to, you are allowed to write about your race. And the broad takeaway for a lot of people who just read about this decision is going to be sort of like, oh, no one is allowed to consider my race. So I should stop talking about it. People will self-censor. Well, that's I think that is where um, those of us who are already in positions of some kind of power, um, as limited as that feels as a poet and MFA faculty member, um, it's not a ton of power, but it it is in our uh, it, it, you know, space. And, and I take that seriously. And I think that that is um, one way of responding. It's, it's got to be, you know, multi-channel response. We have to work to diversify administration, faculty across the board. But in the meantime, we can be very vocal. There's nothing in this decision that keeps us from being vocal about the fact that we care about your experience and we are a place where we want to hear about it, individuated, diverse, specific, whether it has to do with your sexuality, your gender, your race, your socioeconomic background. We are interested in stories, perspectives. That's what we've always been interested in when we go to literature. We want to hear somebody's unique perspective for what it can teach us about things we don't know or understand or have never experienced. And I think, I don't, I, I don't think that's a wrong instinct. Grab that quote from, uh, grab all those quotes from all three justices, Sotomayor, Jackson, and, and, uh, and Roberts, um, 
and, and let's make them visible. Let's make our position on this visible. Sure, we don't have to use race as a metric, which we frankly have not exclusively done ever. Um, but we recognize race as a legitimate category of experience, even if race itself, as critical race theorists have taught us for a long time, isn't real, right? It's not physiological or biological at all. Um, and and so yet we know that structural racism and, and systems of, of racial inequality and differentiation are real. And we care about hearing and reading those stories uh, regardless of of where you come from. And in fact, we, we specifically are interested in, in people who come from different places. Well, yes, I agree with all of that. And I just want to say, Sugi, of course, I do totally agree with you. Yes, America has done a very good job of erasing its past. The difference, and I would say up until this ruling, for instance, and why I find this ruling to be chilling, right, is that in Russia right now, if you say that it was unjustified to invade Ukraine, you can be put in jail, right? In America, you're not supposed to be able to be put in jail for the opinions that you have, right? And this is moving closer to that territory, in my view. You know, it is illegal for you to do this thing, to think this thought, to have this conversation. And that is really not part of what the Constitution is about, in my view. I think it's definitely a sign of institutional creep. I also think that there have been Americans who have, you know, as I think even, um, I'm trying to remember what we were reading from earlier, where we we're talking about selective violence, right? Um, who are the people who have been least able to speak out in this country? And to watch that move into institutions, I think is absolutely chilling. It's been a long discussion, but very good. Jess Winter, thank you very much. No problem. Listeners, please go check out English as a Second Language and Other Poems when it debuts this coming October. Thank you, Jess Winter. Thanks, all. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This episode was produced by Shree Brizendine and Anne Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com. The Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. Also check out our website at fnfpodcast.net where you can find our back episodes grouped by topic areas. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNFPod, on Twitter at FNFTalk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can also find a video of this interview on our Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube and IGTV channels. We'll provide links of all this in the show notes and we'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. Happy reading!